This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Q&A Lightning Round. Nerd-troped westerns. Kitchen gear. And chemtrails. Hey, Ken, guess what project touted here on the podcast is now crowdfunding on Indiegogo? I don't have to guess. I can see here in the script that it's my pals at Phoenix. As in Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. When typing it into your search engine of choice, remember that all right-thinking persons and Swedes spell it F-E-N-I-X. Uh, And, of course, you don't mean to make a distinction between those two things, but you can tell that it addresses the right-thinking demographic because among its contributors is elliptonic raconteur Kenneth Height. Hop aboard the Indiegogo campaign for a Best of Phoenix anthology in English. Stretch goals expand its ambition to multiple volumes. Among its Heightian treasures, Dacian werewolves. Golden vampires. And the frost-caked western Once Upon a Time in the North. Plus, from a roster of other contributors, singing spellcasters, Drowned Oz, and the card game Phoenix Fighters. Plus the cartoon exploits of Burger Barbarian. On Indiegogo until April 3rd, 2014. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. And in this case, everyone is asking Ken and Robin because it's time for another installment of the Ask Ken and Robin Lightning Lightning Round. Round. Chris Shorb asks Ken and Robin, Robin, your offhand comment about taking a flat fee for Robin's Laws left me wondering what are other options creators can take and what is common in the game industry? What is uncommon or rare or unheard of? I'd find it especially entertaining to hear how deals in gaming compare to deals in other industries. I suspect Chris has a problem with the definition of the word entertaining, but let's take a stab at it. <laughs> Hence the inclusion in lightning round! Um, right, so uh, basically uh, the most typical deal is one in which you as a freelance writer are working on an established property and you are paid a flat fee in exchange for all rights to your work which dovetail with another IP. Um, many people make the mistake of conflating rights and payment, though, so it's perfectly possible, uh, as was the arrangement when I wrote uh, GURPS book, and may well still be the arrangement, uh, where you can elect to get a uh, royalty on something that, uh, in that case, Steve Jackson Games nonetheless owns all rights to, and the amount of the royalty can uh, vary, and it can be keyed to the uh, retail price. It can be keyed to uh, net takings. Uh, That requires a a certain amount of trust uh, in the company you're dealing with, but then again, so does every royalty arrangement. Um, And I also have a few things, for example, Hamlet's Hit Points or the print edition of New Tales of the Yellow Sign where, and uh, Hillfolk as well, actually, where it's a uh, revenue share, and it's, so it's uh, a 50-50 deal. So those are basically the uh, ways that it breaks down. And uh, Ken, do you have anything up to add other than that we're not driving around in Rolls Royces uh, lighting cigars with $100 bills? No, because it's very bad for your, uh, bad for your lungs to light cigars with $100 bills because they use, they use those inks. It's toxic. Um, I, I would say that, uh, yeah, the royalty is a, it, it's a fairly standard deal. Steve Jackson is still is still offering it, as far as I know. 
he, I think the preference is to deal with flat fees for stuff that's PDF and royalties for stuff that's bigger, but obviously those, uh, th those options move around all kinds of times. Sometimes, uh, you get a lower royalty for a print release because there are pr uh, pr costs built into that and a larger royalty for the electronic, which is another version that I've uh, seen and signed in some cases. Uh, the flat fee obviously can, can range from, the amount of money on which Lovecraft starved to death. <laughs> starved to death in, in the 30s. 1930, yeah, in 1935. Um, all the way up to numbers that would not immediately get you thrown out of the Science Fiction Writers of America if you tried to offer it as a publisher. So I think that um, those uh, possibilities uh, uh, exist. Uh, in other entertainment industries, a lot of times you, you sell your script or you sell your um, uh, song and you walk away and you never see anything again. Uh, other... Some other industries have professional bodies that monitor uh, releases of the of the medium in question and enforce a royalty payment. ASCAP and uh, BMI, obviously, in music do that. So if you're playing a song on the radio, you have to kick in a couple of nickels to the guy who's credited as the songwriter. And that's the residual in, in Hollywood is the same sort of thing for that, uh, uh, created uh, while Ronald Reagan was head of the Screen Actors Guild, as it turns out. Um, I think that... In general, if there's the more money there is in an industry, the more ways there are to get a taste of it of the of the property, but also the more incentive the uh, producer has to screw you on purpose. I think in most cases in gaming, if someone is not being paid, it is due to incompetence as opposed to criminality. Although obviously the the, the it doesn't amount to much difference if the rent is due. Yeah. Yes. As, as the writer whether they have the money and aren't giving it to you or aren't giving it to you because they don't have it is sort of an academic question. Uh, okay, on to the next lightning round question. Lightning, lightning round. round! Jeffrey Nelson asks, Ken, did you pick Savage Worlds for Day After Ragnarok? And if so, what prompted your choice? Uh, yes, I did. Um, the thing that prompted my choice was twofold. First, I wanted to write it in a free system that had an active and engaged player base. And... Uh, and also, I wanted to write it in a free system that I understood and enjoyed, which ruled out D20. Although they have an active and, uh, and, and a player base, I think it's also harder to stand out in that. So when I picked Savage World, I, I was hitting a, a sweet spot, and I didn't know how sweet that spot turned out to be. It turned out to be a very sweet spot. The other thing that informed that choice was the fact that the setting is very much a pulp setting. It's intentionally... Uh, resembles pulp comics and and uh, and uh, Conan the Barbarian and Quatermass and James Bond and all that sort of larger than life high action uh, activity, but it's also a setting in which social connections matter. So you need to be able to bring a squad of Marines in or a team of uh, barbarians or whatever it happens to be if the game allows it. And Savage Worlds is designed to tell exactly those kinds of stories in exactly that kind of way. So I thought it was a really strong uh, match. Now since then. Um, it's come out for uh, the hero system, which has its own uh, strengths and plays to a lot of the uh, sort of um, multifariousness of, of the setting. So once you're in hero system, you're tied into a million billion other possible books and universes. Right, because there's all sorts of things in that setting. And if there's any system that has a rule for everything, it's exactly. the hero system. Um, and in that case, that choice was done because Darren Watts uh, really liked their after Ragnarok and wanted it for hero. And so... We made a deal uh, such that I could still own the property, and uh, Hero would p would pick up some uh, percentage of the profits to call back to Chris's question um, as uh, for the for the Hero edition and the Fate edition of Day After Ragnarok came about once Fate became an open system, and uh, the new Fate Core came out, 
that seemed to be a really propitious time to get Day After Ragnarok in front of a new batch of uh, of readers. And again, Fate is again another high-action, high-narrative uh, momentum system, so it fits well with the kinds of stories Day After Ragnarok tells. More, More lightning. lightning! The lightning appears in the form of Josh Wrench, who asks, with commendable brevity, we need another Rob Ford update. Robin, do we have a lightning's worth of Rob Ford? Um, that's all we have right now is a lightning's worth of Rob Ford. The reason I haven't done a full segment lately is that uh, since you last got a full segment, nothing huge has changed. It's just been uh, a stream of low-level BS. So the major event would be that uh, Rob Ford has, as he has said all along, it should have been no surprise to anyone, uh, has filed for re-election and will be uh, campaigning uh, for mayor for the rest of of the year, and in October he hopes to be re-elected, and uh, we do not yet know at what point the court proceeding in which the now-acknowledged crack-smoking tape will emerge, but uh, there's a good chance that this will happen at the height of election season. Since then, uh, he has uh, basically, I think, kind of doubled down on on his Rob Fordiness <laughs> in every possible way. Yeah, I think so. In a prior moment of contrition, uh, he in a high-profile uh, TV interview, he said that he'd had a come-to-Jesus moment and was no longer drinking. Well, we've had a string of incidents of public <laughs> drunkenness uh, lately, because I think the lesson that he has taken is that since everyone now knows that he's a raging alcoholic, he no longer needs to conceal that. So yes, uh, we now have come to Jesus moment followed by a come to a Jamaican restaurant. Moment. Exactly. So <laughs> at the, uh, this uh, Greek restaurant called the Steak Queen, uh, there's now a couple of uh, videos uh, that you can find on YouTube. One of them has him semi incoherently and obviously inebriately uh, doing a. Uh, Jamaican Rasta dude impression as he attacks his nemesis, uh, the police chief, Bill Blair, who has had, of course, the temerity to follow him around and see if he's trying to uh, commit (laughs) any crimes. He then went to uh, attend the uh, funeral for a longtime aide's uh, mother in British Columbia. And while there in Quitlam, B.C., went to the Foggy Dew Bar, where he... uh, got uh, wasted, posed with everybody who wanted to pose with him, and then allegedly, uh, after hours, uh, went into the staff bathroom for about an hour and disappeared, and then came out babbling uh, incoherently in a language that uh, the human larynx and lips were not meant to pronounce. <laughs> so he, so he, met, uh, he met the Wendigo. Uh, apparently so. Uh, and uh, also allegedly then continued to uh, drink past closing time uh, into the night with the staff, which has the Coquitlam mayor wondering if there might be a licensing infraction uh, in progress there. Uh, he was also arrested for jaywalking uh, while he was out there, so obviously it's not just the Toronto police who are unfairly out to get him. Um, and I, uh, the other bit of news, I guess, is that the uh, we talked about before on the show that a uh, judge uh, ruling on a, a case involving his former uh, brother-in-law, who has a history of uh, drug problems and brushes with the law, was uh, savagely beaten uh, while in prison uh, for allegedly threatening to discuss Ford's lifestyle and underworld connections. Well, now uh, that uh, guy who's not cooperating with police has filed a lawsuit, and the lawsuit reveals that the people delivering the beating were former members of the high school football team that Ford used to coach, which puts an interesting spin on his claims that he was the only one standing between the players on his football team and (laughs) jail. (laughs) 
Well, so, but if you do go to jail, I have a favor to ask. And then finally, also, he has ripped the uh, film of pretense uh, from his long uh, suspected homophobia. Famously, Ford has refused every year to go to Toronto's Pride Parade. Toronto is a, uh, the biggest city in Canada, as you can guess, has a large gay community. The Pride Parade is a big deal here. But somehow, every year, he has had a family cottage commitment that he could not possibly mm-hmm. break in order to go to Pride Parade. Well, now that all of the pretense is gone, he's uh, now uh, in an all-candidates meeting explained that he would not be going to World Pride, which uh, Toronto is hosting this summer, because... I can't change the way I am, unquote. Um, so the, the way I am is apparently a, a bigot. Uh, and he also... Well, when you're uh, right, you're right. <laughs> I mean, there you go. I, 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 I think that uh, it, it, he has demonstrated that he can't change who he is. That is an honest statement. Um, and, and he has no intention to. Um, and, so, uh, and we also had a bit of a kerfuffle uh, this week. Uh, when uh, in front of City Hall, there's two flagpoles. There's a flagpole for the Canadian flag. It's the tall one, obviously, and then there's a smaller flagpole on which are hoisted a rotating selection of other flags reflecting Toronto's many communities, and as part of the finger in the eye of Vladimir Putin that uh, cities throughout uh, Canada are giving, a uh, pride flag was flown on that uh, flagpole, and uh, Ford kicked up a big fuss about that as if this was some uh, sort of big scandal, because of course you wouldn't want to politicize the Olympic Games. Yes, God forbid. Um, so that's basically, you know, uh, it's just been more of the same uh, nonsense. No major shoes have dropped. Uh, but that's the Rob Ford story so far. I would also like to point out that he cannot pronounce the name of Jonathan Taves, who is um, uh, a uh, representing Canada uh, on the ice there in Sochi and represents, of course, Chicago on the ice uh, the rest of the weeks of the year. So it is a Chicago and Canada together against Rob Ford moment pronounces it twos, which is wrong. Uh, yes, it's, it, it, is, it is a tricky name to pronounce, but if you were capable of changing who you are, you could learn the pronunciation right. of that name. Lightning, Lightning round! round. Uh, Jonathan Abbott, how do you find the quality and worthwhile esoteric used books at various secondhand bookshops? I find myself quite overwhelmed by shelves and shelves of titles and authors I don't recognize, and even at used prices, I can't afford to do too much stabbing in the dark. Well, I think the basic way is the same way that you find books in any other subject area that you're interested in. Um, and if you are, say, interested in World War II history, you maybe have a publisher who you trust. You say, well, Osprey is usually pretty good. Or you say, well, I, I like um, uh, the, the guys at um, uh, Stackpole Books. I think they do a good job, whoever it happens to be. And so you, you learn to trust a, a publishing house. Or maybe you have an author that you uh, follow. You say, David Glantz is a tremendous uh, expert on the topic. I want to read what he has to say. And then once you've got into the the subject enough to have one author or one publisher, you can follow their trail of bibliographies and their trail of influences. And any book that gets cited, uh, for example, by two different authors in, uh, in a topic area is a book maybe you want to check out or you want to see what, what they had to say. Or if you're reading in fiction and you've got a whole shelf full of science fiction and you don't necessarily know any of the authors immediately, you say, well, I like what Tor publishes, or I like what Band publishes, or this book has um, uh, a really good back cover blurb that draws me in. So, for example, the the Vengeful Gin it, it draws me in with the promise of gin. I recognize Rosemary Ellen Guiley's name, um, and uh, then I I flip through it, and there's the secret hidden agenda against the human race, and so that sounded promising. Uh, but 
again, as the as the vengeful Jin demonstrates, sometimes it's not quite as good as it might be, but that's where learning to take uh, material and, and nerd trope it or backspin it or uh, amp it up into into gaming material comes in handy. So for for me, for the esoteric stuff, there's a couple of, of publishing houses that I generally uh, find fairly reliable, like uh, Wiser is usually pretty good. Um, uh, so if, if a book is from Wiser, you can you can usually trust them. Or maybe there's a topic area that you're really into. If you really think that uh, Otto Ron's Quest for the Holy Grail is where you want to go, you can find that uh, across uh, authors. Or if there's a single uh, author that you uh, find really, really good, like Jocelyn Godwin, just buy what Jocelyn Godwin writes and then read what he writes and follow him down his little trails. Uh, it, it's In practice, it's no different from you know, learning how to pick out books on, you know, astronomy or anything else. It's just a matter that a lot of people don't even have that first door in, or what they want is maybe just sensationalism as opposed to an entire book on the topic. And a lot of times, if all you want is just enough data to run a single episode of a role-playing game, you can get that off Wikipedia, or you can get off that, you know, off the first ten hits on a Google search, and you don't really need to find it. Or the complete works of Kenneth Hyde. Or the complete works of Kenneth Hyde. Get it from... The margins of suppressed transmissions. Um, the uh, the other possibility is that a lot of times, if you hit that Google search and you go onto onto Amazon, if there's an Amazon uh, link that comes up first, you can go there and you can do the the thing that Amazon has, has nicely done for you. People who are interested in this book often bought this, and that's another way you can you can follow um, uh, trails of connection. And that's uh, that's of course robots making your decisions for you, but it's at least a thing to look at and either reject or accept. So, like learning about jazz records or anime or anything, really it's a matter of finding out a starting point and uh, diving in and keeping at it and uh, keeping the, uh, in this case, uh, second-hand book industry uh, alive. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that's the end of our lightning, lightning round! round. Once Upon a Time is a storytelling card game. You know this because it's been a spot sponsor on the show for the past four weeks. But did you know that there are a bunch of expansions available for Once Upon a Time? Before now, there were three expansions, Seafaring Tales, Enchanting Tales, and Create Your Own Storytelling Cards expansion. Seafaring Tales lets you weave tales of pirates, sailing ships, stowaways, and mermaids. And scurvy? Well, there is no vitamin C card in the set. Enchanting Tales adds magical princess stories, brooms, jealousy, woodsmen, godmothers. And create your own cards. It seems pretty self-explanatory. At this point, the fearless listener is asking, hey, what's this before now business? Well heard, fearless listener. Now there's a brand new fourth expansion for Once Upon a Time, Nightly Tales. Having rushed out to grab your copy of Nightly Tales, you'll tell a story from cards like Courtly Love, and A Herald, and The Reckless Aspect. And Battlefields and Betrayals, although that's Courtly Love, not Courtney Love, so obviously there's some crossover. And ending <laughs> cards like Because of Her Skill with a Lance, Women Were Allowed to Become Knights from Then On. Nightly indeed. Shall we recap? Have at it, good sir. There are three, nay, four expansions available right now for Once Upon a Time, 3rd Edition. And Nightly Tales is brand new. And it adds valorous deeds, bold characters, and all manner of Arthurian elements to your Once Upon a Time game. 
38 new story cards, and 17 new ending cards, all told. For more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin2. atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin2. For fearless listeners who like knights, quests, and telling stories, and who have an excellent taste in card games. We are now entering the vaguely defined but trope-strewn precincts of the genre hut. And in this case, the hut is a wooden shack on a desolate plain. Tumbleweeds are tumbling by, and uh, I think we see some uh, cattle uh, mooing in the background, and we see a lazy cowpoke uh, passing by with a six-shooter on his hip, suggesting that we are going to talk about uh, the Western, but not just uh, your regular flavor Western, but your newfangled kids today style nerd troped Western. And uh, can we have an example uh, to bring up a little bit later? But uh, why do you think that the uh, Western uh, is a particularly prime subject for having other nerdy genres bolted onto it? I think I think there's two reasons, and they sort of uh, they, they sort of intermesh in uh, what might look like a contradictory way. The first is that the Western is a fundamental story that every, pretty much every American and virtually everyone who's seen American uh, media picks up on early and has sort of internalized in a lot of ways that they know. And now there's some uh, places in the world, like Germany, that still like the Western more than Americans do. Yes, um, uh, and it's, the Western continues to spread, as I mentioned in uh, they they filmed their first western in Kurdistan uh, two years ago. So uh, the western is still alive in plenty of other places, even if it is not necessarily the key to success in American uh, TV and film uh, that it used to be. Although again, True Grit, a western, made more money than any other Coen Brothers film. So every now and again, you you hit a, a rock, a nugget, if you will. But uh, I think that everyone has internalized that the sort of the basic tropes of of that uh, genre so well that it's easy to, to 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 sort of add things to it. I think I think that it's it's got a, a relatively low barrier to entry in that sense that you don't have to master a lot of arcana the way that you do with giant robot fight uh, uh genre. Right. Cuz the thing that's very satisfying about the western is its simplicity is that it is about a frontier world. The uh cast of characters is usually small. It's about a land before it is quite settled and it's about the uh transition between being wild and being settled and so you've got a, a limited number of western locations a limited number of standard structures or plots and a limited number of stock characters so it's a very clear simple base on which to layer your structure of baroque nerdy craziness on top of yeah, I, I think that the that sort of straightforwardness is another really good uh, thing about it. That it's um, that it's that it's not a a genre that immediately involves you in a lot of uh, crazy nonsense stuff. And I think the other thing that makes it suitable for nerd troping, in addition to its familiarity, is its neglect. Is this notion that well, like you were saying, that the the United States has basically abandoned the Western. It used to be that there were something like ten westerns on in prime time, and now you know you sort of have your half westerns, your justifieds, and things like that. And I think there's a, a cop procedural western called Longmire or something like that that's on uh, basic cable. But there's not you know straightforward westerns with the possible exception of Hell on Wheels that are on in you know 
in America now. And that sort of open field neglect is what I think makes people think, well, if I add zombies, or if I add giant steam-powered robots, or if I add a murder mystery, or if I add whatever it is... Or a murder mystery zombie steampunk robot. Exactly. I can, I can bring that genre back, and I can have all the benefits of that, of that foundation, but I can build a structure that is, is crazy and, and gonzo the way that the kids like it today, without worrying that I'm knocking stuff over. Because if you're if every time we you do a, a space opera something you're always fighting with Star Wars Star Wars is always there doing its own thing and maybe it's wrecking your 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 fight because you know they've you know midichlorianed your previously awesome uh, psionic energy field um, and so now you have you know that fighting with you there isn't a Western thing that's coming in to fight with you in in your presentation of the Western there's no other really successful example of that uh, of that genre that's going to force your your story or your world off the rails into a direction you didn't want it to go. So my theory about the fallowness of the Western in America is in a way that it fulfills the whole thesis of the Western in that uh, the Western is about the encroach of progress and America has always been about the new. And just as you see uh, very little American pop culture about the Revolutionary War era, that the cowboy era basically now seems too old-timey for most audiences, and so that they would rather see the themes of the Western transformed into crazy coincidence Star Wars, uh, which borrows a lot from uh, John uh, Ford and the, the searchers in particular. So is Star Wars uh, the earliest example that you would point to as a nerd-troped Western? Let's see. Um, I think the Wild Wild West has to be the earliest example of the nerd-troped Western, because it was a Western, and it was also a James Bond, and it was, um, uh, <laughs> in a lot of ways, sort of campy gay entertainment for the, the, the nascent glam generation that didn't necessarily know it wanted campy gay entertainment, certainly not in proper American TV. Uh, but there's a, a very similar feel to a lot of that sort of glam uh, culture stuff that was coming out in Britain at the same time in Wild Wild West. And so I think that uh, Wild Wild West maybe is the first really nerd-troped Western outside, you know, the people who were nerd-troping the Western back in 1910 when they were writing things like The Steam Man of the Prairies. And uh, there, were, there were giant robots clumping around the West back when, you know, Wyatt Earp was still working. And is it also the ur-text of steampunk? Uh, a lot of people say that Wild Wild West is an ur-text of steampunk. I think steampunk is one of those things that, uh, like uh, werewolves, doesn't have an ur-text, but everyone knows it when they see it. So, uh, I guess the most popular nerd trope western uh, that is current among our circle now would be uh, Firefly. Yes. Uh, which uh, absolutely... Uh, I think follows exactly the playbook that you just laid out, which is that there's this great collection of character types and structures and old timey uh, elocution that you can all uh, put together uh, with the uh, space opera genre and create something that uh, is both fresh and uh, familiar at the same time. Um, and uh, you have an example from Phoenix magazine of a recent nerd troping of the Western of your own, and that's Once Upon a Time in the North, and that suggests that you shifted the Western uh, somewhat upwards on the globe. Yeah, what I wanted to do was sort of do a... Uh, to, to do for the Western, I, th I think a lot of this was, was Dafter Ragnarok still working on me. I liked the notion of a, of a post-apocalypse, and in this case I, I picked a slow apocalypse, um, a sort of combo global warming, giant solar flare, and 
unexamined uh, uh, Third World War between China and the United States that was fought with, at, at least at some level, plasma weapons. And so the notion being that uh, the atmosphere is, is very much heated up, the ice caps uh, are, are melting away to an immense degree, and as miserable and horrible as that may be making the rest of the world, uh, in the north, in you know Canada and Greenland and Siberia, it is opening up a, a new sort of a last frontier on the surface of the earth. And I wanted to sort of look at how you tell that story. So it's sort of a, a post-cyberpunk, post-apocalypse type story. I, I, I was influenced a lot by things like Mark Laidlaw's uh, Neon Lotus, which is about a Tibetan resistance in the 21st century. So I, I wanted that sort of sense that uh, when you go to the north in, in this setting, you're going away from the corrupt, the broken, the failed world that is, in this particular case, being drowned or boiled alive by, by climate change and, and solar flares and whatnot. And uh, the solar flares also let me drop technology down and you know get rid of the internet and get rid of things that, that, that short-circuit adventure. Um, and they're not just there to, you know, make sure that um, uh, anti-global warming people like the setting. Um, they're also there to, to short-circuit radio communications and, and uh, the Internet. And so by placing the Western not at the beginning of something, but at the end of something as a reversion from civilization, you're turning the Western on its head. That uh, it's about a frontier, but it's about a, a dying frontier. And that's... I think that's an interesting part of a, a nerd-troping exercise if it's going to be more than just taking superficial elements from another genre and bolting them onto a different structure, is that you are taking a look at it from a radically different perspective that changes a lot about it. So in, from the character level, how does that affect your interaction with the Western genre if you are playing it as a post-apocalyptic Western? Well, I think that the character level, it'll affect it as much or as little as you want, because you have to remember the Western, almost from the beginning of the Western, has also been about the dying of the frontier and the end of the West. The, the Western began as the moment at which Eastern sensibility encounters uh, the, 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 the cult of, of the gun and the lawlessness of the frontier. It's about the moment that civilization comes to Tombstone or comes to Abilene or comes to uh, Deadwood, and the closing of the frontier and the dying of the frontier have been fundamental parts of the Western ever since the Western began as a genre. So I'm not so much turning it on his head as I'm sort of taking that same sense of elegy and, you know, you know, blowing it out to, uh, to, to sort of a global level. Uh, I think that the characters can then use that energy either, uh, like uh, in a standard Western, you know, when you've, you've left the Civil War because the, the, because the, the Lost Cause failed or because uh, the, the Gilded Age has failed, depending on the politics of the, of the writer, um, and you've come to the West as one last chance to redeem yourself and renew yourself, that trope works just fine up in the, in the warming Arctic. But you can also have as much or as little connection back to the multi, multiple billions of people who are left behind as you want, and their machinations and their activities, I think, drive the story a little more than um, the uh, than the Western does. For the, uh, mostly because obviously the Western pretty much happened in one country. It's not like there's a, a rival um, uh, batch of, of polities all uh, 
jockeying for power over the West, although I note that in the nerd-troped Western, even in something as straightforward as uh, Aces and Eights from uh, Kenzer and Company, they make sure that there's multiple countries in North America so that you can have your characters be from multiple places. And uh, obviously Deadlands does the same thing with its surviving South and its um, independent uh, or quasi-independent other parts of the country. So uh, one of my tests for a Western is uh, how many different John Waynes can I play and what do they look like when I play them? So in the once a time in the in the North setting, I want to be stagecoach John Wayne. Who? What is my character like in that setting? Uh, stagecoach John Wayne is guiding the uh, the the sort of the the, the Greenhorns onto the frontier and um, setting them up. You know, sort of, sort of keeping them alive before they learn the rules. And I think in in that setting, you're one of the people who. Uh, who uh, dicker with the outside world for the food that is being grown in the in the Arctic or the or the new minerals that are being uh, mined there, and so you go back and forth between civilization and the frontier a lot, and so you might be a uh, you know like John Wayne sort of is in that just a, a hired bodyguard or a or a or an expediter, or you might be someone who has um, specific reasons to protect one specific batch of people, maybe they're political refugees or they're uh, scientists who've come up with some method to um uh to, to defend the north against encroaching uh, military force from uh the, the imperial powers and uh i want to be she wore a yellow ribbon john wayne <laughs> okay um in she wore a yellow ribbon john wayne or your or fort apache john wayne you're one of the john waynes uh who is defending uh probably in this particular case you're defending one of the uh for the, for the proper cavalry western you have to be on that tension line right you can't just be a un, uh, unthinking exponent of progress, and you can't be an unthinking exponent of uh, uncivilization. So I would say that you're probably a, a, a member of, say, the Alaska National Guard or one of the new Siberian communes that's, that's broken loose. And so you understand that the freedom of everyone else depends on you keeping the great corrupt metropolis to the south happy, but you also have to make sure that your problematic responsibility, which in this case is uh, sort of full, fulfills both the settler and the Indian role in the traditional Western, doesn't you know boil over and force uh, one of the the big powers to try and come up into the north and uh, conquer uh, the the oil fields or the thorium mines uh, for themselves. Uh, Red River John Wayne. Uh, Red River John Wayne. That's simple. You're you're bringing um, uh, whales down from the Arctic to uh, Japan, and nothing in the world is going to prevent you from doing it, not even your environmentally conscious, uh, yappy little cousin who's along there saying, no, <laughs> if we speak to them, then we can learn the secrets of ocean currents, and we can grow more kelp. And i would never be eating kelp, not in a million years. We're going to bring that blubber to Japan and come back with hard credits that we can use to finally homestead that glacier, or whatever, right? Okay, well, I'm beginning to suspect there's a scene where that guy proves his manhood and punches me out, so uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, true Grit John Wayne. True Grit John Wayne, you are chasing one of the um, uh, uh, the, the freebooters or, or, or pirates that have that have grown up in the, in the sort of the boom towns in Greenland, or the people who uh, black market show up to an undefended claim and they mine it out and they run it down. Um, and so you're hunting down those guys or the slavers who prey on the refugees who come up from the north. They all pile onto, you know, disused oil tankers and just set their some sail to the north in the hope that they will get to a place that isn't boiling hot all the time. And, of course, they are preyed upon by, by filth and, and vagabonds. And True Grit John Wayne is, is he's, he's out there with his Eskimo buddies nine times out of the ten. But he, he comes in to, um, uh, to, uh, to keep uh, the, the, the civilization safe that he nonetheless 
uh, has uh, at, at best a uh, a hearty um, uh, condescension toward and at worst contempt for. Rio Bravo, John Wayne. Uh, Rio Bravo, John Wayne. You are in one of those uh, new towns in Greenland or in Siberia that is being uh, plagued by just such people come up from the south, but in this case, they're not simple refugees. They are filthy owl hoots who are being armed by the Noi European Union or armed by the uh, generals uh, in Denver or the new party in Xi'an, wherever it happens to be. So there's some um, uh, outside interest that is sending uh, this particular batch of owl hoots up with the promise that they can have your town if they can loot it flat. And uh, last but not least, uh, Searchers John Wayne. Searchers John Wayne. Um... This is one that I think works best with a supernatural element. Obviously, anything I write is going to have possibilities of Wendigo or people that come in out of the auroras. Goes without saying. And so you are the John Wayne who's gone out there looking for crashed UFOs and maybe fought the thing. So you're also uh, Kurt Russell doing John Wayne. Um, <laughs> and um, You know James Arness. And, and when you come back to your, your relative who has been living in this little town in Alaska or Siberia or Greenland, you find out that indeed someone has been kidnapped and you have to go back and get them uh this uh, and worse you have to bring along their uh boyfriend or and and sort of keep them alive while you the only person who really understands the wendigo or who really understands uh the tupelac or who really understands um uh, the the siberian death spirits that have um uh, been raised up when the gulags all melted uh that you have to bring them back and you have to keep them alive and you resent everyone for um, uh, forcing you to care again because the way you stay alive out in that hellish uh, landscape of, of death whites is to not have any connection to, to real life. It's like uh, Stalker, right? And, and when you find out that uh, Natalie Wood is uh, possessed by a white, you have to decide whether to kill her after all. Exactly. Well, that's uh, plenty of John Wayne, so I uh, pronounce this a brilliant Western setting and move on to the next segment. Blender, the clatter of, of wooden spoons, and the chop, 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 chop cry of onions tells us that we have entered the food hut, the warm and wafting confines thereof, uh, filling us with hunger and satisfaction in equal uh, part. Robin, what do you have for us spread out on the granite countertops? Uh, well, I thought we would uh, take people on a tour of our favorite kitchen gadgets and appliances. And uh, the first one, I guess, could... Uh, first of all, it's a double act. And this could also be part of a how-to-write-good segment, uh, meaning that it is coffee. So my <laughs> favorite uh, discovery in the last few years has got to be the combination of the AeroPress Espresso Maker and the Breville Milk Frother. So the AeroPress is a series of little plastic parts uh, it looks uh, like basically a coffee bong, and what it allows you to do is to create a perfectly uh, creditable espresso. Espresso, oh my god, I said espresso. Ah. Uh, let's burn the whole podcast down. A perfectly creditable espresso, one at a time, uh, and what you do is you uh, grind your beans nice and uh, fine, and you put them in this uh, 
a plunger thing with a filter on the bottom and you put but a inch or so of water and you press down the plunger and just the action of pushing the water through the plunger uh, replicates with some uh, relatively inexpensive plastic parts the process by which a much more expensive and footprint consuming espresso machine is going to do and uh, you can make one at a time so that's a uh, you know, you got to wash it out and uh, fill it up again to make it for your uh, other folks around the table. So it's a little time consuming in that way. But uh, if you're a writer, you need espresso nearby at all times. And the AeroPress is a uh, cheap, uh, efficient and fun way to do that. And of course, during the winter months, you don't want to just uh, pour in cold milk and ice cubes to give yourself an ice latte. You want a full latte and a, an appliance called the Breville Milk Frother does a fabulous job of giving you your hot, uh, frothy milk. You have two little magnetic discs in the bottom of this sort of metal uh, cup situation that you, uh, you pour the milk into and it spins it around and you can either have uh, very fluffy or moderately fluffy. I find actually skim milk gives you your best quality fluffiness, so it's uh, healthy as well as uh, uh, fluffy. And these two things, if you like my work, are responsible for uh, some of the best of it in the last few years. <laughs> okay, um, I uh, I have the coffee solution, which is uh, to have my wife make coffee, and then I drink it out of a tall mug, so it's not quite the same thing. But I will say that I think the immersion blender may be the greatest single kitcheny thing that I mean besides like a knife which is obvious but the immersion blender which is um, I don't know if you've ever seen one but it's basically a big it looks like an enormous electric toothbrush so there's a handle where the, the power lives usually and or the motor and then there's a long um, uh, shaft and then razor sharp blendery teeth on the end but what that means is you don't have to take the soup or the or whatever it is out of the pot and put it into the blender and blend it and pour it back in. If you're making a cream soup or you're making any kind of a soup with a puree element to it, or even a bean soup where you want to thicken the broth by uh, with the beans as opposed to with something artificial that isn't going to be the same flavor, you can just jam that blender right into the bowl where you're cooking your soup and um, uh, immersion it away, and it, it, it purees things like super fast. The other thing is mine at least came with a little plastic uh, or Pyrex uh, uh, cup that's about two or three cups worth of, of, of volume, and it's the greatest thing in the world for making salad dressing super fast. Uh, the, the problem with salad dressing has always been that it's way more trouble to make fresh than it is just to reach for the bottle in the fridge and, and dump it out. But if you've got an immersion blender, it's really just as simple as olive oil, vinegar, a few herbs or spices out of the cabinet, whatever it happens to be. You toss it in there, immersion it for the 30 seconds or a minute, it's fully emulsified, and you've got salad dressing you can just pour over your salad and it's it's super tasty obviously but you can make any kind of sauce that way with the immersion blender so the secret power of the immersion blender is not just pureeing things it's also sauce and salad dressing making which i think a lot of people may not have realized that they have that power within them the next thing is if you had a, uh, a mom or a mom-in-law or an aunt who in the uh, 80s or 90s uh, had a bread machine and you tried to eat the uh, dry, uh, desiccated, brick-like produce from that bread machine, and you therefore have concluded that bread machines all suck, uh, new, cheap-ass bread machines are good now. Um, so I just recently had my Black & Decker All-in-One, which you can get for around 50 bucks uh, Canadian at your, uh, 
at your Walmart or your other discount store, um, gave out on me after about uh, two and a half years, and I immediately ordered another one because it was worth it. And uh, the quality of the of the bread that you get and the ease with which you make it is uh, uh, has really added to uh, the number of things that I can uh, do in my kitchen. And the big secret I'm here to uh, bring you uh, once you get your bread maker is the uh, secret of oatmeal. So if you uh, take your uh, a cup of oatmeal and then uh, boil it with a cup of water and add that to whatever, basically whatever recipe you're using as your baseline uh, bread machine recipe, and that's something that you'll figure out over a period of weeks after you're working with a bread machine. But if you add this extra bit of cooked cereal to it, it will keep it moist and give it this great texture. And then with that base, um, and I would also suggest uh, whatever oil they suggest you use, use olive oil because you get a nice crunchy crust. And then once you get your basic oatmeal bread going, you can then vary that uh, from recipe to recipe with everything from uh, flax seeds to uh, uh, sunflower seeds or uh, uh, pepitas are great. Uh, you can add in various uh, spoonfuls of uh, sauces from your uh, fridge. So, you know, big glop of pesto suddenly gets you pesto bread. Uh, if you, uh, the bread maker, uh, if you put the ingredients right away, sort of mushes them up. So if you put in a bunch of uh, olives in the beginning of the process, they will be distributed through the bread and you'll get this nice extra moist sort of uh, black purpley bread. Or you can uh, put ingredients in partway through the process and they will be uh, intact by the time the uh, bread rises. So uh, if you have dismissed bread makers, I urge you to reconsider. Yeah, I have one that's, I think... It's one of those that's going to be either crazy obvious or you don't know it. And it's super cheap and super, I mean, I consider it sort of a, a, a standard thing now, but I, there was a time when I didn't have one, and it was a fairly long time that I didn't have one. So if people don't have them, get a microplane grater. And you can get the little, um, you can get them for, you know, 15 bucks or whatever it is at, at, at a decent uh, kitchen place. And what they are, you, you hold onto one hand, and it's about, you know, the size of, say, a, a ruler. Or, or something like that, and then there's, a, a, as it says, a microplane grating surface, and it is the best thing in the world for zesting uh, limes or lemons if you're making, or oranges if you're making um, any kind of thing that has zest in it, whether it's a, a cocktail or a main dish or a sauce. It's also super, it's the best thing in the world for grating nutmeg, which is something that you should do rather than buy pre-made nutmeg, because pre-made nutmeg goes bad faster, I think, than any other spice does, so you should always buy the little nutmegs and then grate them. And uh, if you don't have a microplane grater, grating a nutmeg is an invitation to tear your hands apart because a box grater is, is god-awful for, for nutmeg. So it's one of these things that if you've got a microplane grater, you're right now saying, well, of course we have a microplane grater, dummy. What's your next recommendation? An oven? <laughs> but if you don't have one, you really don't know what it's capable of. And you might think, why do I need a second grater? I have one that my, my big boxy grater, and I can make uh, a cheese all day with that. And, and so if you don't know about microplane graters, the microplane grater is a thing you should know. And if you do know, I apologize for wasting your time, but you can sort of sit back and say, microplane graters, as if. Well, I, I'm pretty sure I don't have a microplane grater, so I'll have to uh, look there into that. There you go. Thank you, Robin, for uh, justifying my, my entry. I am here to prove uh, probably around three quarters of your thesis. <laughs> there you go. And uh, the last thing I would like to mention is something I've... Uh, only recently acquired, and it's yet another thing that you may have dismissed because uh, your uh, mom, who didn't uh, 
uh, cooked that well, used it in the 70s or something. But uh, the slow cooker turns out to be a thing. I, yeah. Uh, if you pick up a book of slow cooker recipes, especially one from uh, the uh, Crock-Pot Company, it uh, turns out Crock-Pot, of course, is a brand name, you will look at those recipes and, uh, except for the very simple ones, they will seem like very unhip, uh, caker-style cooking. But, of course, if you know how to cook and you know ingredients, you can address that. And uh, just a simple matter of uh, cooking a whole uh, chicken or uh, uh, doing ribs or doing pulled pork is something you can uh, suddenly do if you're willing to uh, get started in, at the beginning of the day and be ready to eat at the end of the day. And there's, uh, I think, uh, I've just begun to scratch the surface of uh, what you can do with that. I've uh, ordered some liquid smoke in order to uh, yeah. enhance uh, future products. Um, there's a, uh, uh, if you go to a Middle Eastern uh, food store and buy uh, pomegranate syrup, which is a, a big ingredient of Mediterranean cooking, and then slather that over a chicken and put it in there with uh, uh, chopped onions and uh, whole cloves of garlic and uh an apple cut up and uh, whatever you doesn't fit inside the chicken, fit it around the chicken. And the great thing about a slow cooker, if you don't have one, is that the uh, smell, although incredibly tantalizing all day, is uh, uh, quite profound. And we all know that uh, smell is a big part of eating. And this way you get to enjoy your meal uh, smell-wise in an olfactory sense for about eight hours before you finally eat it. Yeah, I, I just actually got a crock pot of my own, or I... I I forget if it's a crock pot or another brand, but it's a it's a big one, and I got it specifically so I could make pulled pork uh, indoors, uh, which is an, a concern in Chicago. And the uh, oh, it, it's it was really good. There's a number of uh, of cookbooks for uh, for slow cookers that were done this century. So I recommend if you if you are uh, suspecting that you don't need to see yet another recipe for gloppy beef stew, that you look for. Um, slow Cooker Revolution, which is from the guys who the, the cooks um, One Best Recipe magazines, and uh, there's another one. Uh, there's another couple that are that are pretty good. I'm getting some good use out of something called Not Your Mother's Slow Cooker Cookbook, which is uh, aside from traducing my mother, is actually a pretty good cookbook. So, <laughs> yeah. Speaking of having one species confirmed, <laughs> yeah. I'm 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 just gonna say that uh, even if it doesn't quite come off, it's still better than you thought it was going to be when you, uh, when you, when you looked at it in 1979. So it's a, it's a pretty good, uh, it's a pretty good deal. I like, I like slow cookers. I'm going to recommend another one. That's uh, again, one of those, uh, microplane grater type things. If you have one, you're like, duh. And if you don't have one, you're baffled, but it's a spice grinder and you can buy them. And instead of buying it as a spice grinder, you have coffee bean grinders that are basically the same thing. And I recommend buying one for your coffee to grind up your coffee beans before you make it, and one for spices, because otherwise you're going to get sick and tired of washing the coffee flavor out of your coffee grinder every time you want to grind spices. Right. And, and this is an electrical grinder. Yeah, it's a little electrical yeah. grinder. It's, it's you know about the same size as a Coke can or maybe a little larger. And you, you set it down there. It has a little glass or a little plastic lid. You open it up. You put in your, your, um, uh, your whole um, cloves or your uh, cumin seeds or whatever else it is, and you can roast them first or not, depending on how much fun you want to have with your little uh, cast iron. But, again, uh, spices go bad when they sit in the shelf. And the whole reason to have spices and herbs is so that you get delicious flavor out of them. And so the, the, what you need to do is the same reason you need to have a grown-up people pepper grinder that you put peppercorns into so that you grind it at the table like at a fancy restaurant. Because otherwise, the pepper that's sitting there in your, in your shaker is turning into cigarette ash, basically. Uh, plus, you get better tips. 
and but you don't you you don't just grind peppercorns. You obviously uh, cumin is one I think that we grind more than anything else because you can go to a like an Indian grocery store, a Chinese grocery store. You can buy the giant bags of cumin seed. Uh, you can grind your own mustard. You can gr- grind uh, dried ginger. You can grind cloves, obviously, or you can make garam masala with the whole spices. Uh, and then grind it all so that the act of grinding also mixes it up. And uh, anything that you, is a multiple spice set, so maybe you can make your own pumpkin pie spice or your own garam masala or anything else. Uh, the spice grinder is a great way to do that, and it's a lot uh, more efficient and I think uh, makes the spice flavoring more flavorful than pouring uh, them out of the jars into the bowl and mixing them around with your finger, which uh, on the upside does get your finger tasty. So. Right. And of course, you can use that for chopped nuts. And also, if you want to health up your muffins, uh, put in flax seeds, grind them up, and uh, they uh, acquire all sorts of uh, nutritionist-approved healthy qualities and also make your muffin uh, seem uh, moister. Uh, And uh, so, yeah, I definitely second the nomination of reserving a second coffee grinder as a spice grinder. Um, And I think we've uh, given people enough things to uh, go out and uh, buy, and we can head on to our final segment, this podcast. That segment leaves us looking up at the sky at vapor trails, which, if we didn't know, we were standing outdoors in the conspiracy corner, and the outdoors conspiracy corner, of course, is even deadlier than the indoors one, we would have a sense of calm and beauty seeing those lovely white lines going through the sky. But now that we're in the conspiracy corner, we know that these are chemtrails. Dun, dun, Ken, dun. Tell us about why we should be afraid of these white lines in the sky. What are chemtrails? Okay, chemtrails are another one of those things that sounds kind of lame when you first hear about it, but the more you dig into it, the more wonderful they become. So a, a chemtrail basically is the notion that in the in the exhaust of certain planes, and it might be loaded onto civilian planes or it's usually military jets, in that exhaust are chemicals that are being put into our sky in order to change our behavior or change our um, uh, or, or subtly poisonous. And of course, poisoning phobia is the oldest and most powerful of phobias, and so therefore, social phobias. And so therefore, uh, the chemtrail is a po- poisoning phobia for our air age. Um, and the chemtrails, it begins with the notion that uh, perhaps uh, Monsanto is uh, putting something into the chemtrails so that we can only digest Monsanto made food. Uh, another a popular thing is that they're putting aluminum into it to uh, to rain down and give everyone resistance to our enemies' uh, psychic powers, which I, I, I kind of like, a, a positive spin on the chemtrails. There's the notion that they're just poisoning us to poison us or to, to test stuff out. There's uh, the notion that the government is attempting to change the weather for its own evil purposes with chemtrails, that they're hanging there in the sky altering uh, the weather by accreting rain to it, uh, maybe that they're causing a drought, or that they're sort of trying to cool off uh, global warming with their little pieces of aluminum floating in the air and reflecting sunlight back. Uh, There's any number of of possible things. And once you get the notion that there is uh, more to it than just uh, their poisoning us, uh, the, the, the notion that anything can come out of the back of that chemtrail and that someone has already said that it does, then you begin to sort of 
see where that can lead you in, in all of its majesty and glory. So this is sky fluoride, basically. Yeah. Um, so where does the chemtrail meme start? The chemtrail meme began in 1997. There's a guy who was sort of going on and on and on about the notion that it's a sort of slow-motion genocide uh, that uh, because the government is worried about overpopulation, what they're doing is that they're putting um, either abortifacients or birth control or just good old-fashioned uh, toxic uh, waste into the, the chemtrail, and it's going to drip down onto cities full of, you know, the untermension and kill them off. And that this guy was a guy who was um, uh, worried about government-sponsored genocide back in the 90s and uh, came up with this theory sort of... Uh, uh, out of his own head, uh, circa 1997, and that seems to have sort of hit the uh, the trigger. There's some uh, indication that people were worried about it back in the 70s. It probably crossed over with the uh, with the UFO mythos, uh, but it sort of uh, hits it hits it big with this with this guy sort of gathering all these sort of local you know folks looking at the sky and not liking what they see stories and turning it into the chemtrail memeplex. Right, and so the the notion of something that uh, causes miscarriages or that uh, neuters us uh, seems to come from the uh, pro-life side of the political spectrum. Is that an association that it had, or is this sort of off on its own non-ideological zone? I think chemtrails like you know UFOs are one of those that can go either way. You can have the notion that the government is trying to neuter us, but there's also you know a, there's a very strong uh, leftist uh, worry that the government is trying to kill all the all the minorities, and that the way that they do it is either they're putting you know cancer in the chicken or they're uh, doing whatever it is, uh, giving them all AIDS or feeding them crack. Or there's the notion that they're the reason we see chemtrails over cities instead of over you know places where uh, white Republicans live is because they're trying to kill urban voters. And you know, right. uh, it's, it's got nothing to do with the density. Right, of yeah, that would be crazy. crazy. It, 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 that, if you start assuming that. Air, air, airplanes leave contrails based on whether or not there's an airport around. You, you, there's no bottom to that well, or rather there's only bottom to that well. So, yeah, I think that the chemtrail-contrail thing can be either one. I think the sort of the anti-corporate fears that M Monsanto is doing it sort of feed into, broadly speaking, a, a, a left conspiracy theory, but anti-government fears... And that, that's the Roseanne Barr right, version. Exactly. She's a uh, believer in uh, uh, the whole uh, chemtrail... Uh, yes, and, and and you know, like many things, once you get uh, it, it, since it leads from UFOs over to 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 covert poisoning, to government warfare, to global warming type stuff. Um, it, it, regardless of how you come into the conspiracy verse, chemtrails can lead you farther into it. And I think Roseanne probably, I don't know if she began as a as a nine eleven truther, if that was her opening into the magical world of crazy. But um, certainly, once you're in there you can find chemtrails pretty fast. And the thing about it as an image that I think is, uh, it seems to be kind of ripped from the Doctor Who playbook in terms of taking something very innocuous that's around us all the time and then turning it into a monster, or in this case, a sinister poison force. And so uh, if you want to get all head up and afraid and, and paranoid, and, uh, you know, there's no point suffering from paranoia that you never see any evidence of, uh, right. You don't want to be, uh, you know, just have a, a paranoid fear of one particular rare metal like selenium. You need to have uh, something that's around you all the time to be afraid of. And so this takes a absolutely mundane part of life that you can look up. And if you live in a city, uh, you know, you're going to see, given the right uh, weather conditions, 
a bunch of them every day so that you can uh, get that jolt of fear from your environment and the sense that you are uh, menaced and therefore important because someone is taking the time to menace you. Uh, so it really seems like a uh, a brilliant thing if someone had invented it, which I guess in a way they did. <laughs> Does this tell us anything about our era that we're now worried about chemtrails as opposed to fluoridation? Or is this just the uh, sort of arbitrary uh, flowering of an idea that someone could have easily had earlier? They're just happening to have I it think, now. And this is just me, but I think one of the reasons that chemtrails have really clicked on is because right after 9-11, if you lived in the United States, at least, there were three or four days when you saw no chemtrail, no contrails at all, right? Because there was no jet traffic. And that first contrail that you saw, that first jet that you saw coming back over the sky, laying its, its trail down, was a kind of a powerful, iconic image. And like any powerful icon, you can look at it as a, as a symbol of, of positivity and say, yay, you know, America's back flying again. Screw you, Osama. Or you can look at it as a negative and say, well, there you go. They're back at their activities, whatever those are. And I think that it's a, it, it was such a powerful moment, that absence of contrails for three or four days. Because I, at least in Chicago, that September week was just clear as, as heck. There were no clouds. It was perfectly blue and sunny. It was like a movie sky uh, all week that week. And so the reappearance of those contrails, I think, sort of jump-started this at the time, very, very recent conspiracy theory up to sort of the front rank of, of memes because it had that, that sort of symbolic moment that everyone saw if they lived in North America. It subconsciously piggybacked on another big trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a trauma that uh, you can, again, whatever your political persuasion, you can find paranoia mm -hmm. in. And again, there's, um, I think the fluoride thing, there was a lot, I mean, there's still people who are crazy panicked about fluoride. I think there was somewhere in Oregon that was like voting to defluoridate their water. And this, again, wasn't right-wing people worried about communists. It was left-wing people worried about, well, noble gases, I guess. It, it's, <laughs> right, it's kind of migrated into the whole anti-vaxxer thing and the whole uh, bodily purity. Uh, I guess there's probably an interesting thesis to be written in terms of when bodily purity shifted from being... A, uh, a fascist notion to a progressive fringe uh, notion. Yeah, and again, it's it's not like these things ever die. It's like anti-Semitism, you know, was was uh, pretty much the you know a right-wing thing, and then it became pretty much a left-wing thing, and now it's sort of beginning to cycle back around. So it's one of those you know deals where you know you st sit around long enough and it'll pop up wherever because there is no rational basis for it. But I think. The fact that we've had fluoridation now for 50-odd years, and every, and the only result is everyone's teeth have been more healthy, kind of drew the, the... It kind of lanced that one a little bit, but we generally have a sense that everyone is getting sicker because, of course, we're living longer, so we're seeing more debilitating injuries take us out instead of, um, oh, you broke your leg, therefore you died of a bacterial infection. Sorry, uh, type things. And so I think there's a, a greater sense of sort of... Uh, creeping disease, the cancer, Alzheimer's type things that we're dying of as we get healthier as a society. And that leads the poisoning to have to be more subtle. And the 21st century has, has moved along from fluoridation because it's not in the news anymore to something like this. Because again, you look up in the sky and you can see it, it that very Nigel Neal uh, uh, touch that you mentioned that you take something. Right. And it, it also piggybacks on the global war on terror era in that it sort of a, serves as a metaphor for the, uh, you know, the drift toward authoritarian democracy. And so the, uh, as the 
state accrued uh, more obvious power to itself in order to uh, fight the uh, threat of terrorism, that uh, you saw that sort of happening inch by inch. And if you were of a mood to be unnerved by that, again, from either either fringe side, you then see the idea of, you know, the government imperceptibly, subliminally exercising its control over you. That's a sort of a chemtrails are a perfect visualization of that idea as a, as a visual metaphor. Um, I think you can also uh, piggyback that with uh, sort of the larger fears of global warming, because global warming is the atmosphere is somehow going to kill us now, because the carbon dioxide, which of course you can't see, is building up and there's going to be a greenhouse effect. But when you look up at the sky and you're like, I'm worried about carbon dioxide, you're not going to you know, be looking for a spectral uh, signature. You're going to be looking for clouds. And an artificial cloud, like a, chem- like a chemtrail, is going to be something that I think triggers. I don't think that it's nearly partnered with the global warming theory, except for, for the guys who say that it's done by a secret cabal of scientists fighting global warming. But I, I think that you can look at um, that same sort of fear of death from the sky that maybe is, is moved over in a lot of ways from the Cold War, worried about the missiles coming down, that now it's sort of found a new niche, and that the atmosphere is scary. What's in the atmosphere contrails? That's why they're scary. Maybe there's a connection there. So in a game connection, are we tempted to start with chemtrails as the seeming conspiracy, which is then revealed to be something else, or as the uh, thing that turns out to be really going on that your characters have to combat? I think the chemtrails work best, and this is just at me, my own aesthetics, but I think chemtrails work best. You've been led into the conspiracy through one door, uh, you know, dead aliens or whatever, and the chemtrails work, I think, is a good mid-level story element that, oh, of course chemtrails are real, and here's the explanation within this universe. But I think the chemtrails aren't necessarily big enough to be the big bad, and I, and I think they're diffuse enough to not necessarily be the way into the conspiracy. I think that they're a good, yes, things are crazier than you thought this obviously crazy thing is in the game universe true. I think that that, that makes a good confirmatory moment as opposed to um, a door in unless the guy who mysteriously died was a world-famous chemtrail researcher or something. And uh, does it wreck it to throw in a supernatural element and say that uh, the wizards are laying the groundwork to uh, bring magic back by uh, subtly altering the atmosphere with the products of their alchemical labs and that this is the initial harbinger of the uh, great supernatural inbreak? If you ask me, nothing is ever made worse by bringing the supernatural into it. Um, but I would say that that's one possibility, that they're, uh, that they're alchemical, alchem trails. But I think another possibility is that they're using those lines, and part of the mystery of the chemtrail is how it hangs in the sky seemingly much, much longer than normal jet contrails, which, of course, we're not afraid of. <laughs> Do. Um, I think that the notion that they're drawing glyphs, right, that they're putting up vevs up in the sky to summon voodoo loa, or they're drawing uh, pentacles or glyphs, uh, when you see the, the two chemtrails cross each other and another one, they make a geometrical pattern. Like, are they... Uh, are they concealing an, an, a demon? Are they summoning a demon? I think adding a, that sort of you know notion of a of a chalked pentangle, but putting it right up there in the sky to make manifest that which should be hidden. I think that's a, a really powerful element. I think that you could definitely do something supernatural with it over and above just the notion that um, uh, that the chemtrails are being you know uh, using UFO technology or something. So how long until a uh, bona fide conspiracy theorist uh, clamps some supernaturalism onto the chemtrail, I mean? I don't know. I think that the, the supernatural guys 
Um, they're 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 relatively off on their own. That said, I'll bet if I searched Satanic chemtrails, I could find something right now. But uh, that's because Satan, I think, is for a lot of people who have a basically uh, political or economic conspiracy belief. Uh, that they still don't see anything incongruous, as I guess, nor should you, uh, with connecting that to Satan, as opposed to having, in our sort of gamer, you know, genre sense, well, Satan's more supernatural horror, and your conspiracy is more techno-thriller uh, type notion. Well, but Satan I, plus any other word gets a lot of hits. Satanic exactly. broccoli, satanic exactly. shoes. Well, that one makes sense, <laughs> believe you me. Um, but yeah, but the uh, but I, I think the notion that there are uh, wizards or Freemasons doing it is is maybe a, a couple of bits away. There, it's it's always possible that uh, the Tex Mars will need something for his for his next book of of uh, things to find in pictures. So uh, maybe he's going to be the guy who opens us up. Well, we all know that uh, game designers are just sent out there to secretly lay the groundwork for what's uh, really happening, even though they're denying it, even as they're saying it. So. Uh... Uh, I think, uh, Ken, we can uh, pronounce our uh, uh, work for the Magical Inbreak uh, done uh, for another week. Yes, uh, we have made manifest that which is hidden, which is, as you know, our secret and therefore public task. Uh, yes, but that would be an even longer name for the podcast. Yeah, it would be. And also we'd get in trouble. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Phoenix. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep us slicing, dicing, and making Julian fries by clicking the donate button at kennetrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. 